What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Bo Hightower. If you guys haven't heard of Dr. Bo Hightower, it's probably because you're not big MMA fans, and that's okay. You don't have to be a big MMA fan to understand that what this guy's doing is immensely valuable. Um, the reason why I wanted to interview Dr. Hightower is not because he treats John Jones, Alistair Overeem, Cowboy Cerrone, some of the biggest names in the UFC. The reason I wanted to take Dr. Hightower and put him on the podcast is because most of what he is showing on social media that he's doing is totally different than what we're doing in our clinic. And yet he's getting results, which goes to show that the way that we do things is not the only way to do things. And the way that he does things is not the only way to do things. But I knew if I had him on, I'd have the opportunity to learn a little bit about what he's doing, learn a little bit about the mindset that he has when he goes ahead and approaches a patient visit. And I knew that it would be valuable for you guys to listen to somebody who's doing something so differently than how you know we're doing stuff. It does two things for you. Number one, it allows you to hear various methodologies. The idea that there isn't a dogmatic approach to how you're supposed to do stuff. It's the way that works for you works for you and the way that works for your patients works for your patients. And, and if you're a coach, the way that works for your athletes works for your athletes. If you're an athlete, the way you need to be coached is the way you need to be coached. People need to understand that. Um, the other thing is to hear about some of the techniques that are out there that I'm not using that might be valuable for you. Um, because a lot of you guys are reaching out to me and I appreciate it very much, by the way, when you reach out to us, we love um, messages from listeners looking for help. But a lot of people are reaching out to me, reaching out to our office for care because they don't think there's a doctor near them who's treating exactly the way that we're treating. And while I love to get those calls, sometimes there is a doctor near you who's not treating the way that we're treating who can help you. Dr. Hightower would be a great example of that. If we were looking for a practitioner to send you to off of the networks that we use to find practitioners we wouldn't find Dr. Hightower, but he'd be a great option. And I think that that's profound. I think that it's important. So this episode, you guys will get to hear a very, very, very different type of doctor than, than I am. Although we do some similar things, a lot of what we do is very different. Um, he treats people for half an hour. We're 10 to 15 minutes. Totally different. Um, you're going to get to hear about how he grew his practice. So if you're a business person out there, this guy's successful. He's making money. He's getting people well. You might want to listen to how he grew his business. He has over 100,000 social media followers. So if you're looking to grow your social media following, again, good person to learn from. And he's treating people of very high influence. Professional fighters at the tip of the spear. So if you're someone out there who wants to be working with high-level athletes, with people who are in the spotlight, it might be valuable for you to listen to how he did it. This is a good podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it. There's some tactical information. There's some theoretical information. And I just, I think that it's a really cool one. It's, it's interesting. It's not like many of the other ones that we've done, but um, I'm going to let you guys go ahead and enjoy it. But before I do, please pause now. Well, not now. Pause in a moment and go ahead and leave us a like or a comment, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this. Those comments, those ratings, your shares, when you share this podcast with your friends, that's our lifeblood, right? If you're not finding this from my Instagram, if you found this from one of your friends, 
You know that's how we're finding people. And if you value the workshop, excuse me, if you value the podcast, you'll share it with somebody else. Because it's valuable to you, it's probably going to be valuable to them. The best ways you can share it, click that little share button, copy the link and send it out to somebody. Leave a comment, leave a five-star review. We don't ask for much, but if you guys can help us out with that, we'd really appreciate it. No further ado, Dr. Bo Hightower. All right, so welcome Dr. Bo Hightower to the Active Life Podcast. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, Doc, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Um, you're one of the people who, you know, in, in our field, right? You're, you're a chiropractor, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, um, sir. And, and in our field, there there's so much dogma out there, right? Of this is how you have to do it. The only way to do it is the way that I'm doing it. And I think that um, many of us, including myself from time to time, fall victim to that, that mindset. Um, and I just have so much respect for the way that you run your, at least your social media, right? We're going to find out <laughs> more about your practice, but the idea of like, listen, this is, this is a science of integration, not isolation, which I think is cool. Right. So the way we try to view things is we, we have some basic understandings about, you know, the universe, the laws of nature, physiology, which is constantly changing. We have to acknowledge that what we may learn in the future is different than what we know now. But based on what we know now, what we want to do is we want to approach something using logic as our primary technique and then problem solve. So kind of reverse engineer treatment based on what we're seeing. So like one of the things people ask us about is does XYZ technique work? And I, I frankly hate techniques myself. I find that protocols are a very simplistic mindset way to do things. They're, they eliminate problem solving. They eliminate personal um, responsibility from the practitioner, which is not what we're here to do. So yes, every technique works for a certain patient population, but the best way to get the right results is to be able to identify those people who need whatever treatment, whatever technique, and be able to apply that right away without going through their protocol, through their dogma, through you know whatever XYZ technique they learned in school or picked up in a seminar. Uh, sure. I mean, and we're going to dive much deeper into that, but would, would you, would you mind just for the, for the audience, I mean, I introduced you during our intro, right? But would you mind kind of giving our audience some background on how you, how you became the doctor who you are now? Why, why what you're going to tell them is, is important, right? Like, I mean, we're, we, we talked about how you work with UFC fighters. We talk about how you educate students, but I would really love to hear from you just a little bit more about your background. Okay. So I was a biology major in undergrad. I played college football at the University of New Mexico. Um, and I actually got into chiropractic by way of football, by way of sports. So um, I actually was unaware of the philosophy that was associated with the profession when I actually got into it. Um, I had heard Emmett Smith, uh, Marlon Schwarzenegger, Joe Montana, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, um, all of these world-class famous athletes talk about how chiropractic care was so important to the maintenance of their career. So when I was in high school, I started going to a chiropractor and he would adjust my hips and my neck and whatever I needed. And I would go back and play and I would come back when I needed to. So he never talked to me about philosophy or above, down, inside out or any of those kind of things. So I was frankly unaware of those things going into school. And as a biology and a chemistry major, I had a pretty hardcore scientific background, um, pretty skeptical about most things. So chiropractic school was kind of a culture shock to me. Um, well, so well, when can, I got into practice, were, were you, were you pretty lonely as a football player in biology and chemistry classes? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, mostly I actually didn't really <laughs> hang out with football players in college because yeah, we, uh, 
we didn't have classes together. Um, <laughs> different different group I ran with, that's for sure. And and that's, and that's not a knock on football players, right? I just I know how high the demands are on college athletes in general, and and being in a demanding major can be a difficult thing to do. Yeah, it was actually frustrating because my advisor would only let me take three science classes at a time and I would get upset with them and I'd be like, well, I need to take these classes. And they said, no, no, we don't want you taking all these classes right now. Um, so it ended up to the point my fifth year um, after I graduated, like sports wise, I ended up having to take like uh, 18 hours of all pure hardcore science, like <laughs> calc, calc three, physics two, two quarter level biologies, uh, advanced physical chemistry, like all in the same semester. Which was a good uh, a good practice run for Cairo school. Yeah, that's what everybody wants, right? They're, when they're, yeah, exactly. When they're in. But yeah, I mean, that's another thing is about chiropractic school. I don't think a lot of people realize how much science we actually take. Right. And the, and the, the course load, too. Um, I don't know about what school you went to, but Parker, we had 30 hours. We had 10 classes. So mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at you know, biochemistry, radiology, biology, um, hardcore science. I mean, it's it, the curriculum is – the actual science curriculum is 100% on par, if not better than medical school. Yeah, I, I actually remember, I think we were uh, between 25 and 28 credits a semester. I don't know how many hours yeah. that is. But um, yeah. I remember being at a wedding uh, towards the end of my chiropractic school with a bunch of medical students <laughs> who were at GW. And they're like, oh, right. you're a chiropractic student. And I was like, yeah, like, well, 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 I don't understand. And they're like, well, at our school, we have this great software and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing right i'm jumping around but like we have this great uh, software to dissect the brain so you can actually see like all the levels in real time and you can turn them around and see them from different angles what do you guys use and i was like um we we use a brain like we yeah. we cut a brain we, open they're like yeah. what like like a real one like yeah i don't understand how you would do it without holding it in your hands and they were they were like no really in chiropractic i'm like yeah man we take we take solid anatomy for like eight hours a week for a year, and then you have to you know yep. then you have to go home and study it, of course. But so I'm sorry I I interrupted you, but you were talking about how your last semester was a really good prelude to chiropractic school preparation, which is like drinking water through a fire hose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Um yeah, I mean, that's the thing about like different schooling. Like there's not a different version of biochemistry that's taught to somebody else. Like biochemistry is biochemistry. Organic chemistry is organic chemistry. You either master it or you don't. Now, one of the unfortunate things I ran into with some of my colleagues in school, for whatever philosophical reasons, didn't think that pathology was something they needed to know because they were only going to adjust bones. Um, so that's kind of where we diverted paths. And, and what I wanted to be was the best healthcare practitioner possible. I really don't care about labels. I frankly don't care about professions. Those things don't define who you are as a person. They can define your scope of practice, but you practice the way you want to practice and mostly as a healer. And so when I got through with school, I just didn't feel like I, I knew the manipulation was helpful for a certain per, you know, percentage of the population. Um, but when it didn't work, what was I going to do? And so we started to, you know, I took seminars. I developed different types of approaches based on other things. And basically what we've done is we've, we've rolled this into something we call orthotherapy, which is basically the best practices of all types of physical medicine and trying to apply them to the base, best patient population to get the fastest outcomes um, in the shortest amount of time. And so that's kind of where we've, we've come to. Well, I think that there's a, a level of vulnerability that doesn't necessarily get appreciated when you say it so matter of fact, right? Because it's, you graduate school, you just went to school for, for people who don't know, either three and a half or four <laughs> years, depending on how you, how you went to your chiropractic school, right? Three and a half if you didn't get any breaks, four years if you went with some breaks. 
Um, yep. And then you graduate and you're like, well, this doesn't work well enough by itself. I need to go back to school essentially. Right. Right. And, and, and I need to learn yep. more, even though this cost me $150,000 and, yep. and four years of my life of dedicated studying and, and, and immersion in this, um, there might be more out there and, 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 and yep. you made that decision. So I think that's a credit to you and, and you know what it's like out there. A lot of people are graduating school and they're like, okay, cool. I'm ready to heal the world. Let's adjust C1 until your back feels better. Right. right. And, and, and cure cancer with it. And you know, I'm not suggesting that the people who say that have zero merit because they might have one, some merit somewhere, but um, I just don't think that's good enough. And I, I commend you on making that decision. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's not necessarily a knock against chiropractic specifically because that applies to all professions. My physical therapists that I hire straight out of school, they don't know anything. They can't fix anybody. Right. Uh, medical doctors at graduate school, they haven't done a residency. They have no nothing. They have no clinical practice. So be, because you have a doctorate means that literally nothing. It means that you, you know enough to hopefully not be dangerous. And that means you've got a scope of practice to work in, but that doesn't mean that you have any set of skill whatsoever. And so that, that's another point I want to get to. So you'll hear these people, and I don't know if you heard um, Joe Rogan going off on oh, this podcast. I heard it. I heard yeah. it. Everybody, so, everybody's in the same group, and let's now generalize and bastardize yeah. everything they do. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So, you know, and the argument is this. is that Here's the thing. Um, a chef is not a chef. Chef, like if you go to a world class restaurant and you get you know the the highest five star thing on the menu, that's still a chef. That's not the same as somebody at Applebee's. Not a knock on somebody at Applebee's, but that's not, all chefs are not the same. Um, you know, comedians like if you got the funniest guy in the world versus somebody at your local club. I mean, they're both comedians, but the the outcome is going to be significantly different. So there's a there. I mean, there is a skill set in any profession, and so yeah, to generalize anything into that, I mean that that is the lowest form of intellectual um, integrity and, and and thinking that you could possibly come across was to is to lump an entire profession into a works or doesn't work category. I mean, I, I couldn't even think of anything um, less scientifically provocative than that. <laughs> I love the way you, you phrase that to, you know, it's to, to take it into the world that, that, you know, Joe Rogan lives in. If you took a high school JV wrestler and put him in the octagon with, with, you know, Cody Garbrandt, it's unlikely he's right. going to do well. Does that mean that wrestling doesn't work? You know, yeah, right. No, it doesn't mean <laughs> wrestling doesn't work. The guy, the guy doesn't have the appropriate amount of experience to be in that, in that situation. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, so, so totally I'm, I'm with you on Good that. Analogy. Thank you. Um, but so, so how did you become like you're in New Mexico, right? And I, I follow your account. I've seen that you've, you've treated John Jones, you've treated various other, um, well-known household name, uh, UFC fighters. Mm-hmm. How, how you're in New Mexico. They're not living there, I imagine. Right. So how are these people ending yeah, they- up in your office? Yeah. Most of them actually do live here. They come train here. So oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I practice. I practiced all over the country, but I am from New Mexico originally. So when I lived in Dallas, um, I treated a, a group of fighters out there called Team Takedown. And so that was my first foray into this. And it kind of, I worked in a medical doctor's office at the time as a family practice. And they were referring these fighters over because they were doing their medicals. And they said, um, do you think you can treat this big knot on their shin? And I said, well, you know, it's my second year practice. I don't know. I'll try. So, you know. <laughs> 
and, and we fixed it. And so that, that built a relationship there. So that was kind of the start of that. Now I went to Ohio. I practiced in Cincinnati for a while. And when I moved back here, it was just a natural progression because I have worked with a lot of pro athletes in the past. Um, and there was no therapy similar to what we were doing here, which was immediate outcomes, uh, measurable outcomes, things that can change right away. And so, um, yeah, measurable. That's you know <laughs> one of those things. Before and afters and goniometers and all that fun stuff. And so when when this this gym Jackson Wink opened, they asked us if we would be willing to come into their office. And so we've got a we've got a seven practitioner office within this mega gym facility. Oh, um, so cool. that's kind of how that happened. That's cool. So and I'm the I'm the only chiropractor in the group. Well, I, like you said, not necessarily practicing chiropractic the way your school intended you to practice it. And that's, that, mean, that, mean, that means that it doesn't matter if you're a chiropractor or a physical therapist or a massage therapist. If you have the appropriate knowledge base and can apply the appropriate intervention, you can be effective. And are willing to put your ego aside and to acknowledge that you might be wrong in this given case, given a different um, presentation or, or maybe what you expected to be right 90% of the time didn't work. And say, oh, you know what? That either my approach is wrong, or we need to look at something else, and then fixing it. Period. So I, I really don't care, like I said, what your profession is. I want somebody that is capable of, of reassessing themselves, their reality, and their patient population constantly to give their patients the best possible outcomes. For sure. And I interviewed. Um, I don't know if you know who Jen Esker is, um, but she's a physical therapist out in, in LA, and she works out of a gym similar to you, but in an open kind of looks like an open bay. Like she's she's on a table in the middle of the building. And, and she also, I think goes to people's homes now sometimes or did, but, um, she was talking about how she's learned from ballet instructors. She's learned from, you know, phys- personal trainers. And it's, you have to be able to put some serious ego aside to be somebody who has a four year degree after a four year degree, plus a residency and, and all of the experience that needs to come with that to go to somebody who went to a weekend workshop to get their certification and say, Maybe you know something that I don't. Let me see what you're doing over there. And I think that's important and it's valuable. So I'm sure that yep. you being one of seven doctors on staff, despite you maybe being the senior doctor, have learned from some of the other people who are there. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're if you're not capable of acknowledging that other people have better ideas than you sometimes, again, you need to just check your uh, your diploma at the door because there's always something to be gained from everybody. Like there's a pearl of wisdom in every seminar and every technique. Now, can you extract the good out of it and leave the rest of it? That's where people have a hard time because again, they're intellectually lazy. They want to just follow a formula that oh, I did the certification, I got XYZ, FMR, blah, 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 certification. And now I'm going to do that on every single person because this is just the absolute truth because I paid $600. Um, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's, that's crazy talk. So, but, but so now you, you are a, um, you've done well, obviously by your patients because you continue to get more and more and more influential athletes coming to see you. And I think that most people who are in mm-hmm. our field, who are, who are chiropractors, physical therapists, strength coaches, personal trainers, whatever it might be, everybody wants to be able to say, I'm treating the 1%, which in their own mind, which is not necessarily reality, I'm not saying this isn't real about you or anybody else out there, doesn't necessarily make you the 1%, but the association with the 1% athlete to public perception kind of puts you in that category, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, So how did you you know, what's the advice that you would give through your own experience for somebody who's out there saying right now I'm treating everything from grandma 
to the the high school football star, but not anybody above that level. How do they become the person who professional athletes are seeking out? Because it's not okay. just being great, right? There's more to it. Yeah, I mean that helps obviously, but you know that this is a different time, and this is fortunate and unfortunate. So fortunately. Um, people are capable of seeing your works out there because of social media and you can build it through that means. And in fact, one of the things that I want my practitioners to do as well is that, you know, we can, we can work some deals with these folks, um, you know, sponsorship deals or whatever else, but we need, you know, we need them to help to partially promote us. And of course we need them to sign, you know, informed consent sheets or not informed consent sheets, consent of image sheets to where we can post, when we're treating somebody at a high level too, because like the old saying goes, if there's no pictures, it didn't happen. Right. Um, and, and whether you're good or not, if, if you've been seeing the 1%, like you talked about, people are going to assume you're good because, you know, XYZ person has the resources and the ability to see anybody in the world, yet they're choosing you. Correct. Um, you know, it's, it's building those relationships and, you know, and frankly, when you're starting off like that, you've got to be flexible. I mean, I, we always joke, like who are the people that we would cancel our whole Friday to go treat like who are those people that are that influential um so a couple of my docs were talking about that we're like well you know regardless of your political party you know if, if hillary clinton called me up and said hey we need you to fly her and treat her i'd be there if donald trump said you know come out here i'd be there mm-hmm. uh, if it was the rock if it was uh you know justin bieber Sylvester stallone so there's some like super influential people that could really make or break your career almost if they promote you um you know most of us will never treat those kind of people but, but, wait, but I, I, want, want, can, can i ask you a question about that yeah what yeah. if what if donald trump or hillary clinton or, or the rock or whoever you just mentioned said bo we need you to come out and treat this person but we're uh-huh. not going to tell anybody <laughs> you you, that- you can take photos and you can post them but we're not going to tell anybody you did it oh yeah then i would certainly do it then for okay. sure. And if there were no photos that would, of Ooh. <laughs> that's that's a tricky one. I probably would still do it based on the fact that the social reach of that person, maybe they don't introduce you to somebody else. It gets you into a circle that you may not have had access mm-hmm. to before. So you may not ever get to post about that person. But odds are powerful people generally have powerful friends. Mm-hmm. And so that can lead you to another area, which, you know, I mean, all roads are open-ended, right? It could be that they would point you to the head of the VA hospital or, I mean, who knows? I mean, but sometimes you just got to walk through those doors, even if it doesn't turn out to be the best thing for you. Sure. And and now, is that a situation? So we, we talked about you want to, you know, document the important person who you're working with. Is that something where somebody walks in your door, let's just, you know, pick the most, the most, the most celebrated fighter you've worked with, for example. And they're like, Bo, I want to work with you and your doctors. Do you immediately turn to that person and say, well, your exposure is more valuable than your money to me. So can we yeah. do this on film? How, how does that work? Because yeah, it ta- depends I'll- on the person. Okay. So you, you've got to be able to read a situation, obviously. And some people are more reluctant than others. Some people's value is more than others too. I mean, in fact, in some cases you may have to actually pay somebody to do it. If their social media reach is worth X, Y, Z, your treatment may not be worth enough to that person um, to maybe post you on, you know, whatever else too. So you have to decide if that's within your marketing budget to do something like that. So it also depends on how long you think you may have that person around for. If I have somebody that lives here, um, you know, that's not going to be my go-to early on. I'm going to build rapport with them. I'm going to make sure that they're comfortable with me. Now, if I'm only, if I know somebody's only in town for one day or two days, yeah, it's going to come up at the end of the conversation because I have nothing to lose from that. Right. Right. For sure. And now, um, have you ever been turned down for that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Um, does, does, it, does it make for awkward conversation after that? Hey, would you mind making a post? Uh, dude, I'd really rather not. Okay, cool. Pay the girl at the front. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and some folks would rather pay and then, yeah, that's fine with me too. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the way that it goes sometimes. So like anything in life, you can't take anything personally. You just roll with it and you want whoever it is to be as comfortable as possible. So if they're not, that's cool too. Um, that's how you lose people. If you make them feel uncomfortable, no matter what it is, whether it's the music you play, whether it's lighting in your room. So, you know, as healers, it's, it's, you know, we're partly psychologists, you know, part of our job is to be able to read our patients and see what they will be comfortable and not be comfortable with. For sure. Um, you know, luckily at this point, you know, with the, with the reach that I have, most people kind of know the deal and it actually, so for some of them, it's better exposure being on my social media than theirs. Right. So, uh, that's a cool problem to have at some point. Yeah, for sure. I, I know. Um, what is the value for you, right? Because I mean, you're, you're largely, your, your business, as far as I understand is, is in-person practitioner to patient relationship, correct? Yeah. Yes, sir. So, so our company, we have, we have patients who come into our office all the time. Um, some fly across the country for it, which is cool. And some just walk in off the street. Um, right. But we also provide online support to people around the world. So it's valuable for us to have this digital reach of, of a social media following. What's the value for you? Um, you know, I, frankly, I, at this point, there's, there's technically not a whole lot of value in it. Um, what, at some point, what we may do, we probably won't. I always say this, that we're going to teach seminars. I could cash in right away. I guarantee you. I mean, at a thousand bucks a head, 30 people a weekend, you're going to cash in really quick. But I don't believe that the things that we do are capable of being taught in a weekend. It takes me six to eight, nine months to treat a doctor, a level person, to be able to give the, the quality care that I would expect to have my name associated with it. Sure. So more than anything, it just it just you know builds reach as far as uh, TV time and you know things like that. From a financial perspective, it I'm booked seven eight weeks out regardless. Um, you know, so it, it doesn't really matter. It's more fun at that point. But what it does build is it builds my other other practitioners' businesses that don't have that reach. So if you can't see me and you know we have the same treatment, then you're going to go see Dr. XYZ because they know they have the same treatment. So um, it, it does help some, but it's not as much as maybe it should be. Um, maybe if we start selling products or something like that, it, it definitely it definitely could be more. But frankly, I've been more focused on just giving really, really quality musculoskeletal care. Um, you know, and who knows? Well, the future is always open. I'm always open to different models and things like that. But yeah, it certainly could be something that generates revenue through another stream. Now, you said something that I, I often thought about what we do, right? And, and it cost me, cost is a relative word, right? But I felt like it cost me years of opportunity because of the way I was thinking about it. And I'm curious to hear what you think of this. You said it would take you nine months to get a doctor to deliver the standard that you believe is necessary to put your name attached to it, right? But the question I ask you, because, well, I'll just get to the question. If a doctor's out there right now delivering C1 adjustments all day long, that's all they do, right? Or they're, or they're, they're just stim and, stim and adjust, whatever. Would that doctor not be better off coming and learning something from you for a weekend for their patients when they go back home than, than nothing, right? I mean, don't, don't you feel like you could have an impact helping doctors, um, even if it's just for a weekend to go back and be yeah. better than they are right now? Yeah. Um, that, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, you know, we're in business too. So, um, really one of the only things that makes whoever's business unique is what they know that other people don't know. 
mm-hmm. um, or how they can deliver. So it, right. And if everybody else could do the exact same thing, what's the point of flying me into Atlanta to go to, you know, treat on the set of venom or, you know, whether else. And so maybe that is selfish, but um, you know, all my, all my practitioners are in contract with me. And part of that agreement is that I will teach them hopefully how to be really good practitioners and get really good results. And that's the monetary um, investment that comes back to me. So I, um, it sounds almost immoral the way I'm phrasing this no, no, right no, no, now. No, 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 I don't, I don't think you sound bad. Yeah, I, I don't think you sound bad. Yeah, yeah. I just, to, to me, <laughs> and I get it. And what you're, what you're getting at is basically that, not that it's proprietary, but you busted your ass to learn this stuff and you don't want somebody out there bastardizing it. Um, and then, and then saying they do what you do. And now somebody's like, well, why would I go see Bo if I can see this person for the same treatment right. when they came out for a weekend? Um, and, yeah. and I'll and just, then they learn it and they create seminars and they cash in and make a million dollars off of it. Sure. <laughs> well, still people. What, what I will tell you is this, and then we can leave it at that and you can do with it or, or not do with it, whatever you want. Um, what I have found is that the more that we have educated people on what we do, the more successful we've been. Because now there's doctors out there who, you know, yeah, sure. There, there, there are people out there who've come to our workshop and then they see on their social media that they're literally delivering my workshop to a gym or to a, a team near them. But at the end of the day, for me, that's creating a market for the kind of stuff that we do. And no one's going to beat the way that we do it online. We have too much time, money and effort invested in it. And sure. it's, it's, it's helped us grow. So just a seed for thought for you. Yeah, it's a good thought. Um, so now, how you know, how did you grow your clinic, right? Because if the social media following is, you have a hundred something thousand people following your social media. Mm-hmm. If I had to bet, it's less than a thousand who live in New Mexico, right? And and I don't know, That's definitely less than a thousand in Albuquerque. Maybe. Interesting. Uh, okay. It's probably more. We've okay. got about six thousand patients in Albuquerque. Um, That's a lot. So. But, yeah, were, we, but were, they uh, patient, were they patients first or followers first? That's a good, I don't know. That's a good question. Okay. Uh, we, we get a little bit of both. Um, yeah, we get a lot of people locally that come in because of, you know, social media stuff too. But, you know, it's also local news stuff and things like that as well. Um, so the way we grew up practice, I mean, I started out by myself, 500 square feet, super, I mean, I was, I was basically broke. I left my old job. Um, I burned through all my savings. So I had about a thousand dollars to my name so i bought a table a desktop computer i set up shop my buddy owned a building 500 bucks a month rent um and so i just started going to gyms and barber shops and places of influence uh bars and i would basically what i would do is i would comp treatment for the bartender for the trainer for the barber people that probably don't have health insurance that that have influence on people and basically they would refer me all of their people and so that's the way that it started out. Was that a, was that a uh, deal? Did you go in and say, if I do this for you, you need to do this for me? Yeah, it was kind of the, you know, not understood. paying for referrals, but yeah, it was understood. Um, we can we can negotiate some things in exchange of services um, for influence. And so that's kind of the way it started out. So within a, within about nine months, I had built it to the point. And I, I see people on 30-minute intervals. So they do 30 minutes with me, 30 minutes of rehab with my uh, PTA. So by myself, I could only see about eight people a day with that model. Um, so I hired a, another rehab person who then ended up going back to school to do this treatment. And so um, we've got four naturopaths now that are doing it. We've hired several physical therapists as well. And so it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and so basically just uh, we're 99.9% word of mouth. 
Um, we don't pay for any advertising ever. We don't, uh, yeah, we don't do any of that kind of stuff. And, and essentially that gives us the patient population we're looking for. We want people cause we're cash only as well. Um, so we don't do any insurance. So basically we want people that are willing to invest in their health that are willing to take accountability for their health. Um, because we're only averaging four or five sessions total, but we want to teach them in the long run how to take care of themselves using strengthening self myofascial work mobility. Um, which is a huge component of our care. So we we basically figure out what treatment they need, and then we teach them to treat themselves. So four four or five visits per patient, you're saying? Is yeah, that's you, about the the and, average of our mm-hmm. uh, treatment length to resolution. And is it is it a standard office fee for coming in for a visit? Uh, yeah, we have eight, it's eighty five dollars for new patients, seventy dollars for all follow ups. That is so reasonable. And I know I know people are yep. listening to this, and they're like, every time seventy dollars or eighty five dollars, my insurance co pays twenty dollars. Right. Right. That exactly right. That's right. You know, yep. and, and, and it's, <laughs> we've, we've had people who've come into our office and they've said, you know, you're $75 for a visit, but my insurance, I have a $20 copay. And I'm like, I know I, like, I understand that. I, I understand why you would want to use that. Um, and they're like, but my other doctor took it. And I said, yes. And you're here. Right. I mean, and, <laughs> right. And, and, and it's no disrespect to the doctor. It's just possible that oftentimes what we find in, in, in this space is somebody has a technique they hope that their technique works for the problem that presents in their office. And when it doesn't, they're unsuccessful. And right. you were speaking to this the other day where you were saying basically that um, we as practitioners can get a set of blinders mm-hmm. on because what we end up with is the physical therapy patient who comes into our office and says physical therapy didn't work for me. And that happens 20 times. And then the chiropractic patient who said, I got adjusted 20, you know, and it didn't work for me. And it happens 20 times. The orthopedist gave me cortisone shots and it didn't work for me. 20 times. So now all of a sudden being the doctor in the practice who's seen 20 of each of those, you're like cortisone shots don't work. Adjustments don't work. And physical therapy sucks. But none right. of that's true because the people who got well in those care and in in those types of care aren't walking into your office saying, Hey, just want to let you know, I went to physical therapy worked Great. Have an <laughs> awesome day. You know? Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just interesting to me that, uh, that, that, that you're similarly priced to us, even though you're out in Albuquerque and we're doing things similar in that we're not looking to, to be, a, I don't know, a, a slave to a methodology, but rather a, you know, a, an inclusive kind of provider. But now yep. talking about what you do differently, I've seen some of the stuff that you guys do. And not only have I not done some of it, I had never seen some of it until I was on your page. Um, right. So... Take me through some, let, let's start with some of the stuff that you do that I was, that I have seen, that I have tried, um, and haven't personally had much success with. So I stopped doing it. Um, the activator gun, right? So mm-hmm. for people who don't know what the activator gun is, it's basically a, um, I mean, how, how would you describe it? It's, you squeeze it and it, it drives a percussion into somebody. Yeah. Is, it's, is, it's got like a recoil device on it. So it, it yeah, it's, a. Uh... Yeah, that's a good question. How do you describe the thing? Right. Um, it's, it's, it's a little clicker. It gives you a little punch. Right. It's a, it's a, it's like it's like it's like a it's like a little hammer on the end of a of a straight pole. You pull a spring back, and essentially, when you pull it far enough, the spring lets go and it fires the hammer into you. Um, but it's very, very, very low intensity. I've used it in the past on osteoporotic patients, on elderly patients, on children. Um, so, I'm, but, but I frankly was never very successful at eliciting a response with it. And I know that it by itself is not necessarily the way you would derive a response. But I'm curious right. how how you um, 
came to use something like the activator gun as often as you do, for example? Okay. So, um, yeah, this is kind of unlearning the things that you've learned. So I started looking at it and started thinking about what this response might be. And I started thinking about Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles and what the possible effect of multiple stimuli into a tissue could be. And so just in the same way that I've showed people how to use it as a reflex hammer for like patella reflex, what I find is that if you use it in succession, essentially with the muscle moving, not trying to move bones necessarily, but basically trying to trick the muscle into not knowing its spindle length, uh, will basically trick the muscle into allowing it to stretch further than it can be. So um, that goes back to what we're talking about. Like every, every instrument works in some way if you truly understand the physiology behind what it's doing. Like if I believe that that's enough force to move one of my vertebral bones out of place, then I'm probably screwed if I bump into a wall or you know do a burpee <laughs> or something like that. Sure. But and then it doesn't make much logical sense, you know. If that that's all it takes to put it back, then and I'm putting significantly more force into my body in my life. Like how could I hold quote unquote hold any adjustments? And then so and so, so if it doesn't. Sorry, go, go ahead. Well, well, so so you so use that to create length in a muscle, which. Um, is that a permanent change, do you think, or is that a temporary change that you then reinforce in the physical therapy, you know, with the physical therapy aid thereafter? It's probably the latter because you're creating a neurophysiological response that allows the muscle to be more relaxed. At that point, you can start to make longer term changes, whether it's elongating the actual myofibrils or doing soft tissue work to break them up. But it's, it's important to get range of motion first before we try to strengthen anything. And then once we get the range of motion, how do we keep it there? Well, you know, through P, uh, PNF stretching, through um, static stretching, through soft tissue work, through uh, strengthening the um, antagonists, through all of those kind of things that we would normally do. But we couldn't get those things to work first until we were able to open up that joint. So you also use what looks like a massive hammer and chisel, which, <laughs> which I've seen, which I've seen videos of people using, I, I believe in India. Um, I'm not sure what the country of origin that I've seen that stuff happening in, but it looks mm. brutal, right? I mean, like mm. it looks like the kind of thing that you put this on your social media almost as a joke, but then you mm -hmm. scare, but then you scare patients away. So it's a bad joke, but you use it in a, in a, in apparently an effective way. So what is, can you talk about that for a little bit? Cause I think that's one of the things that someone comes to your account and they see that and they're like, whoa, hold on a second, what's going on here? And they might stick around and then learn something. So I'm hoping to right. learn something right now about what that is. Right. And so it, with our social media, we, we're doing it for the vine. We're doing it for the gram. So we don't post the boring stuff. We post the stuff that looks weird and crazy and whatever else. So of course. the vast majority of what we do in our office is soft tissue work. I mean, 60, 65% of what we're doing is, is soft tissue work. It's treating fashion. It's treating muscles. But that's really boring. It doesn't video very well. Um, teaching people core exercises. I mean, it's nice to show an example every once in a while. But again, it doesn't video very well. It's not unique. Everybody's doing it. So the theory is, is, you know, bone setters, right? They've existed in every culture for thousands and thousands of years. Like chiropractic isn't some brand new thing. It's something that was stolen from, you know, other areas, other parts of the world. Um, you know, there's, there's people that talk about bone manipulation going back two to three centuries in Iraq and Mesopotamia areas and obviously India, China. These things have existed forever, but they're, they're reformulated over and over again based on different philosophies. So whether it's A.T. Still talking about vascular compression or D.D. Palmer talking about nerve impulses or uh, Oakley Smith, who's a napropath, talking about ligaments compressing these things, they're all reformulated bone settings. So in, in Holland is one place, for example, where this is actually a fairly prevalent technique where medical doctors actually do their bone setting with 
chisels and mallets that are actually, you know, titanium, tungsten, you know, high tech stuff. When you're looking at India, they have rocks and, you know, things things would not exist for thousands and thousands of years if they didn't work for some people. And that goes back to what we're talking about, cupping, acupuncture. They all work in a certain patient population. But if you get away from the dogma and figure out why these things work physiologically, what you'll be able to do is take a new purpose for that and apply it to the right patient population. So for example, if I need a radial head or a fibular head or a first rib or something to move in a very specific way, the odds of me getting a manual manipulation or adjustment in a very, very specific way is is not really that high. I don't have as much specific control with it. So in this case, if I say I need to move a humerus, downward, for example. Well, I can use these other tools to give me a very direct linear response. But what it does is it gives me the force that people had hoped they had done with, uh, you know, an activator or some other type of technique with actually enough force to physically move something. And now the contact that that's making with the body, because I think when you look at it, most people, when, when, even, no matter how blunt the end of this thing is, when you picture somebody hammering a chisel, you're picturing a sharp <laughs> edge. Right. I mean, like right. it doesn't matter. So you, you see you putting this thing on somebody's back and hammering it. It's like, what is he trying to kill that person? So uh, what, you know, is, is the end that's touching the patient? Is that cushioned? Is it flat? What, what is that? Yeah. They've got, they've got a uh, rubber rubberish tip to them. We've got many different sizes of them too, um, that we'd use for different body parts as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always joke that if this doesn't work out for me, I can always go into ice sculpting. So there's a second career there for me. There you go. You just gotta be artistic. I've seen you dance. So maybe you can, maybe you're artistic enough. For that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, but so now, you know, there are doctors who are going to be listening to this and they're like, okay, so fine. Let's just say, for example, I'm going to choose one thing that they talked about today and I'm going to grab the activator and I'm going to see if I can make it effective. Right. Mm-hmm. What's your advice to the person out there who is going to try a new tool? And when I say tool, I mean application of anything, right, that they haven't done before. So a tool in, their, in their proverbial toolbox. How do they go ahead and, and use that without risking injuring a patient or wasting a patient's time? Right. So most of the techniques that we come up with, we start with two two areas. One, each other, obviously. So we'll come up with an idea. And one of the cool things is me teaching at university. I'm always going through biomechanics books and I'll come up with new ideas based on obscure muscles or things, you know, secondary motions of joints that I go, Oh, I should have paid attention to that in school. So now that we're in <laughs> clinical practice, we bring it back over here and we're like, what if, what if this does this, or what if the popliteus is responsible for not allowing knee extension, you know, after a hyperextension injury. And so what we do is we treat it on each other. Um, because you won't really know your reality until you've had something done on yourself. It's amazing to me people that do techniques that don't have it done to them. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost shocking. The other thing is we have a nice patient population of four and MMA fighters here um, that, you know, don't really speak English um, <laughs> that are just looking for some sort of care. Um, and they, they, they're willing to put their bodies up to anything. So we get to try a lot of different things on these folks um, you know, people from Dagestan and Russia and some of them are used to weird stuff anyway, like blood cupping and, you know, all kinds of weird things like that anyway. So nothing really shocks them that much. So we're able to test our theories out on a lot of these folks that we're not necessarily charging, um, you know, and that are, that are, you know, to the point they're so hurt that they're not going to be able to do their sport. They're willing to try anything. So we, we mostly test those out on our low risk patient populations. Um, it's not something I would take grandma, 
you know, who's getting here paying 70 bucks a pop for treatment and say, we're going to try something <laughs> brand new in the other day and we'll see what happens. Now, do you train MMA? Um, I wrestle a little bit, but that's about as far as it goes. I'm, I'm mostly a pacifist. So, so, so do you, I'm asking this because, um, I'm sure that your practice, even though you treat MMA, you can't, you can't be completely mixed martial artist based practice. Right. But, um, right. what, you know, here in our, in our area, we're by the beach and the, the large population of athletes, despite us seeing a ton of CrossFitters is surfers. But right. n- now neither myself nor my partner surfs. So it's difficult for us to have a conversation with them where we find commonality about what it is that they love and want to get back to doing because we mm-hmm. don't do it. So my question to you is, since nobody's trying to kick you in the head every day, how do you, re- <laughs> how do you relate to guys when they're like, you don't understand, you know, it's this guy's yanking on my elbow this way and I feel it over here and... I need to get back to it. And you're like, I, I know, but it's going to take this long. How, how do you have that conversation? Yeah. For, so that's, that's a tricky thing for doctors in general. And that's something I picked up really early in my career. I was treating like ballet and cheerleaders. Like if you're going to be a clinician and you're going to treat people in a specific field, you better do your homework. I mean, you have this little thing called Google. You should be able to come up with a lot of the terminology and understand things that are going on with your athlete. If you don't do that, you've lost them right off the bat. I've had patients tell me before, like they go in there and, and they're explaining gymnastics and they don't know what a, you know, a roundover or a backhand spring is or something like that. So if, if you don't even understand what they're doing, what hope do you have of possibly helping them? And maybe you could actually fix them, but you've lost their trust right away. So for clinicians, you've got to get out there and understand it. You know, whoever you're going to be seeing, you need to understand the language of their, of their sport. You need to understand the mechanics of their sport. But really, in, in actuality, we should, if you're in physical medicine, you should be a biomechanics expert. You know, you should be able to feel enough bodies to where you understand what's going on with it. Um, our job is literally to be masters of anatomy and physiology and understand physics. And, and you've got to be active, too. I mean, you've got to understand weightlifting and things like that if you're going to be in this. Otherwise, you, like you said, you're not going to relate. Now, you're not going to go surf. I'm not going to go get head kicked. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't learn enough about it to where you can't relate. Sure. And, and one of the things that I find most interesting that, 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 you know, I mean, I used to play baseball. I don't anymore, but we do see a fair number of baseball players. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting is when you go to talk to, say, a professional baseball team strength and conditioning coordinator, right? Mm-hmm. When, when they think about bringing you in, one of the things that they ask you is, you know, how much baseball did you play? And say, like, well, I played right. in high school. I got cut by my college team. But what's the difference? I know what a shoulder <laughs> looks like. You know what I mean? I, I know how mm-hmm. a shoulder works. I know what it feels like to have dead arm from throwing a ball too much. There shouldn't be that much else I should need to know to help manage your pitchers. You know, I know how a shoulder works. I know how an elbow works. I know how a wrist works, hips, knees, ankles, and I know how they relate to each other. But I think that it's, it's, it's just the idea of creating that commonality that builds the trust between athlete and doctor. So I think that, you know, the point that you make of spending time on Google and actually getting to know a sport is valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Like be, do your homework in anything you're going to do. Like, by God, don't just go in there and just wing it. Like you, you should have some sort of understanding and credibility, like have some pride, you know, have some pride in your work. Um, you know, unfortunately that, that is one of the things with this profession. I feel like, um, there's a lot of folks that just don't take enough pride in their work and they're just treating it like a regular job. Like, these professions aren't the professions you go into if you don't have a passion for this stuff. So like go, go into business, go into sales, sell cars or something like just because you want a doctorate. If you don't like people and you don't want to problem solve, 
like really you're getting into the wrong field. So if you're in Cairo school or PT school right now, if you're out there listening and you don't like people, you don't generally want to be around people and you don't like to solve problems, you should really reconsider what you're doing, honestly. Dude, I had a conversation with a kid the other day. This kid called me from University of Maryland, which is where I graduated from. And he's like, hey, any advice for a college sophomore? Right. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> what's what, what kind of advice are you asking for? You know, it was it was he was on the call to ask me for money. But one of the questions along the way was any advice for a college sophomore? And I said, well, you know, what's your major? He's like accounting. I said, do you absolutely love accounting? Like, do you eat, sleep, drink and, and dream about accounting? He's like, I love accounting. I said, cool. What else do you do? He's like, I'm in a fraternity. I said, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, how would you, he's like, actually come to think of it. How would you balance my major and my fraternity? And I said, well, does somebody have to do accounting for your fraternity? Does one of the students in your fraternity have to do the accounting? And he's like, yeah, the, our treasurer does that. I said, is your treasurer passionate about accounting? And he goes, no, he hates it. I said, perfect. Take it off his plate. I said, because if you're doing the accounting for your fraternity, all of a sudden, the stuff you're learning in class becomes exponentially more valuable to you because you can immediately influence the people and the group that is most important to you. And you can have a better fraternity that has better accounting. So you do well in class. Your fraternity has more money. Everybody wins. And he's like, oh, I don't want to do the accounting for my fraternity. And I was like, change your major. You don't love accounting. That's my uh, advice to you. I'm like, get out of it. If you don't want to do accounting in an environment where someone's going to allow you to do it, that you're passionate about the environment, you're passionate about the people, then you really don't love it because nobody is ever going to be as much fun to do accounting for as the fraternity right. that you're planning parties for, man. Right. Like, <laughs> so, like, so my advice, get the fuck out of accounting as a major. Yeah, and, that's and good. You're, and you're right. It's the same thing. Um, for doctors, if you're in school and you don't like helping people, you don't like being wrong and having to figure out how to be right, get out. It's only going to be an expensive time for you. Yep. Yeah. That's, yep, that's, you're going to owe a lot of money to the government that you're never going to get out of. Nope. Uh, and, you know, debt comes with the territory and a lot of us can get our way out of it. But, boy, it's going to be so much more miserable if you hate what you're doing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, so, I cannot so, imagine. So another question for you is working with such high level MMA people, right? You know, you have, uh -huh. you have, you have professional fighters coming in. The ambition for these people in every single aspect is to inflict injury on the person who's standing across from them, which means the person standing across from the person you're treating is trying to inflict injury on them as well. Your job is to make sure that they're as uninjured as possible. To me, that presents a very unique situation that should be easy for you to talk about. Right. You know, so, 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 um, so what's it like when somebody comes in and they're like, I don't see how an MMA guy could ever really be 100%. If he was ever caught in an armbar, he is always more likely to have elbow pain than the person who's never been in an armbar. Sure. So, does that make your job um, more difficult? I mean, it can be, you know, they're literally going out and destroying their bodies, but I don't think it's significantly that much different than CrossFit in, in that sense. Um, you oh, know, CrossFitters we, we, kill you, themselves. They're yeah, absolutely. So it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's destructive. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we'll do a thousand kipping pushups today and then we're going to swim with a brick in one arm and then uh, we're going to do handstand pushups until our shoulders completely collapse. Mm -hmm. Weird. I don't know why you're hurting. And then, and then we're going to swing from a bar. 
Yeah. And then when we're done yep. with that, we're gonna go to the rings and swing from those. Right. Yeah. So that's right there. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get kicked in the leg over and over again. Somebody's going to take my neck and try to twist it off. Um, so yeah, it is, it is an interesting situation. Um, but it's, it's become the norm for me. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't freak me out anymore. You just understand what their goal is. And, you know, my goal isn't even necessary to make sure they're as uninjured as possible is to help them facilitate whatever goal they need to be. So, you know, even if they're injured, but they can still function. And I believe that they can still achieve their goal, which is winning, getting paid, you know, X, Y, Z, we send fighters in with really bad injuries. A lot of times, as long as it's a functional injury, we have folks that will send in with the torn LCL, um, sometimes an MCL, just depending on their matchup or who they're fighting or, you know, what they're capable of doing as far as movement, they're going to fight anyway because they don't get paid otherwise. I mean, that's their job. You know, if I tear my pack or if I strain something, I can still come to work. I'm not going to take time off. Um, you know, these guys, if they get pulled from a fight, that's, you know, half their years is income right there. And, mm -hmm. and so if they, they, they have bills to pay, they have kids to feed. Um, so the goal is to help them be in the position to where they can achieve their goal. And most, you know, obviously that is being healthy, but like you said, not, not a hundred percent healthy. Well, so if you have a broken hand, you're out, you know, if you have a torn ACL, you're out. Um, but the goal is finding, finding the position to where they're not going to be more vulnerable to more injury, to more brain trauma, to whatever else. And still putting them in a position to where they could still win their fight or you know win their match. Well, the interesting thing to me is I think that there's a really clear parallel between MMA and in, as far as the UFC um, and CrossFit, because in the beginning of MMA and the UFC, it was like, I mean, you had your tiny Yarborough who weighed 600 pounds fighting a guy mm -hmm. who weighed like 180 or 160, right? And and you had um, all kinds of mismatches and and ridiculous techniques and strategies and. It was just a lot of it was stupid. Um, and if you look at the 2009 CrossFit Games, which was the first time that they were really implementing um, high complex weightlifting skills on a grand scale, you watch that and you're like, I would never associate with that. Right. Right. Um, and now MMA has come up and it's become much more organized and much more uh, fair and equitable to watch. Um, and CrossFit is kind of doing the same thing, but something that I think a lot of people don't realize is how many guys in MMA are making enough money that they're not going to have to work when they're done fighting. Right. Right. It's a, it's a very low amount. It's right. a very low amount. Right. And, um, and, a lot of them are just getting to the point where they're not working a second job, honestly. Right. It's, and in CrossFit there, I would say you can put them on a single hand, the athletes who don't need additional income, uh, you know, with their, with their sponsorships. And I, I make air quotes when I say sponsorships, because getting free supplements is not a sponsorship, you know, right. ask my, free shirts. right. Ask Mike Trout about his sponsorships. It is not free, you know, body armor drinks. Um, but it, these sports are running in parallel in that the tip of the spear can retire off of what they make if they're smart with their money, but everybody else has something else they need to do. So when they come to see somebody like you, when they come to see somebody like me, there's a lot of responsibility there to make sure this person can do what they need to do. Right. Um, um, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, so I was just going to ask yeah. if, if, if you find the, the 30 minutes you spend with, only because I know he's a household name, John Jones, different than the 30 minutes that you spend with Pamela. Yeah, it certainly can be. You know, there's more on the line. Um, 
you know, we, we tend to make more time for those folks, you know, your Holly Holm, your, your Cowboy Cerrone, your Alistair Overeem, your John Jones. Um, the, the stakes they're, they're fighting for, playing for is on another level. I mean, if they pull out of a fight, you're talking about eight, $10 million um, on the line. So, you know, where do you find that balance between the pressure of, of doing the right thing for them and pulling them and having them come eight, $10 million shy? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very tricky decision to make. Um, you know, and, and luckily at this point, I've had enough experience with all of it that I'm pretty comfortable with it. But, you know, early on in my career, those were very, um, there's a lot of pressure involved with those decisions and you don't want to make the wrong choice to where you think that maybe they could have fought or, you know, and some people are capable of just brainwashing themselves. Um, that's not how my brain works. You know, I, I always go, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Do you remember, Um, do you remember the first time you pulled someone from a fight? Yeah, I do. What was that Uh, like? It was, uh, it was difficult. It was very difficult. You know, they start crying. Um, and, and, you know, not, not that, uh, there's a difference in the passion between the two male and female, but you know, there's different hormones involved too. And, and frankly, there's a lot more tears involved when we have a, a female plot of the fight. Um, you know, often, oftentimes just because they've invested so much into it, but also where it falls on their cycle. And, uh, you know, it, it can be a very dramatic experience and you're, you're watching somebody's dreams get crushed in front of you. Um, but you can't back out of it. If you think that clinically they need, to be pulled from the fight. Like your job is to take care of them and make them safe. And the same thing happens. Like I've worked, like I worked at a UFC event as a physician for it. Um, you know, you've, you've got to get somebody, if you think they have a, a potential for a brain bleed, they've got to get to the hospital now. And you know, the athletic commission is looking at you like, Oh, don't spend too much money. Don't send too many ambulances. Well, you know, that's not my job. My job is to take care of these people. Really? Um, so so that's, always- a, that's a consideration from the athletic committee, huh? Yeah, they kind of look at you like, uh, I don't know, are you sure you need to send them in an ambulance? Because then if nothing's wrong, they go, oh, that was, we shouldn't have sent them. But what if something is wrong? And we're 30 minutes from the hospital, and they start having a, bl- a brain bleed right now, and they're dead. And then, and then what's the lawsuit going to cost you? Like, Well, that happened, um, with, that happened. I forget what the boxer was, but I remember watching a fight. Uh, it was a, a Russian white guy. I don't remember his mm-hmm. name, but it was a boxing match, and the guy got, I mean, they didn't stop the fight. He made it to the end. He lost the decision, I think. But then it was like th- that night he went to the hospital. He was throwing up. He had bad headaches. And the next morning he was induced into a coma. He came out of it. But it was like, mm-hmm. wow, that that's bad. And I remember watching the fight and it was a good fight to watch. But right. for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a guy that he got knocked out cold at, at this legacy fight. And his head bounced off. And the other doctor I was working with, he was a medical doctor. I mean, his physical was the most atrocious thing I've ever seen. He just kind of looks at him and he goes, you okay? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, all right. I'm like, no, 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 he's not okay. So I go <laughs> in the back. The guy has gone into the, long, the wrong locker room. And he's, he's apparently gone to congratulate his opponent three times now. And, like, they don't know if this guy's going to come back and try to fight you after the fight. They're, I mean, it's a weird situation. And so, you know, he keeps, he doesn't know what day it is. He keeps repeating himself. And I'm like, all right, man, here's the two options. Your, your trainer right here can drive you to the hospital or we put you in the ambulance. That, that's it. That's all we have. Um, I'm concerned your eyes are dilated. Um, and, and he goes, and he was answering all the right questions though. I was like, what day is it? And he knew what day it was. And I said, you know, you know, what city are you? And he knew what city he was. So he's asking, he's answering all the right questions, but something's wrong. So finally we get to it. So I'm like, what do you want to do? He goes, man, I just want to go watch the fights. Man, I just want to go watch the fights. Man, I just want to watch the fights. <laughs> I load him up on the ambulance. Let's go. We're done. Uh-huh. Um, but if I hadn't caught that, the other physician that was there was just, yeah, he was just signing everybody off. 
Um, and that's when, you know, they go home and something bad happens and, you know, all you had to do is ask a few more questions. And, and that goes back to clinical practice too, right? Like just ask a few more questions. You know, sometimes my other providers will ask me, like, they didn't tell me that they didn't tell me that. Well, were you asking the right questions? Were you, were you, or were you talking about your stuff? Were you right. talking about, you know, what you've been doing lately? Cause guess what? They're not paying to hear about your life and who you've been treating lately. They're well, here, you know, for us to help them. So you need to get that information out of them. Well, I think that that starts with caring enough to get the information out, right? Because the other, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know the other doctor who was at that fight, but I imagine that when you work an event, you get paid a flat fee. Right. So fighter X comes yep. in. Hey man, how do you feel? What day is it? It's Saturday. Where are you? I'm an Albuquerque. What do you want to do? I want to watch some fights. Okay, cool. Go for it. I'm getting paid no matter what. Right. As opposed and to. It's, and it's not much really like. No, but, 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 but either way, it's like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm do. I did my job as opposed to, yeah, I did my job, but there might be more I could do for this guy. Let me see if there's anything sure. else I can do. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. One question I always like to ask people, especially when they're in a position where they have enough success that, that, that typically people are, are comfortable enough discussing it, is do you have any failures that, that other people could learn from so as not to make the same mistake? And, Let's and, and, see here. That's a good, and, and a good fa- question. A failure doesn't need to be like – Oh, I got this diagnosis wrong or I spent 20 grand on this and I didn't need to. It could be something as simple as my mindset was X and it should have been Y. But do you have anything you can reflect on and be like, wow, yeah, I've actually reflected on this in the past and I've since changed that behavior because. Yeah. So one of the big things for me is, is doing treatments on people because I don't know what else to do. So early in my career there, you know, I can probably count them on two hands patients that I wasn't get the results that I was looking for. So I just decided to do a a regular old fashioned diversified adjustment. Um, even though I had no reason to do it, it didn't make sense with what the presentation looked like. It, you know, it wasn't a facet joint, you know, blockage, it wasn't an SI joint. And so nothing I was doing worked, but so so I just said, well, well, let's just adjust it then. In almost every single one of those cases, the patient ended up leaving worse. And, you know, maybe we, maybe they had a disc issue that we, we shared it and made worse. So one of the things that I always try to to impart is those failures with those patients because they should leave an emotional sting to you. Um, they should help you learn and grow from those things. You should have a reason to do every treatment you do. There should be a clinical indicator in your mind that you know through past experiences and logic and physiology that if pre- presentation looks like X, why should be the next treatment? If that doesn't work, then this might happen. This might happen. So when I when I talk to my clinicians or my students, those are the big things that I want to talk to them about is like, think about why you're doing something. Don't just do it because you don't know what else to do. Odds are, if you don't have a reason why you're going to do some sort of treatment, treatment X, Y, Z, you're probably not going to make it better and you're probably going to make it worse. Um, that's probably the biggest failure as far as business is concerned. Um, I've done pretty good on this one so far. One of the biggest <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's we have almost all of our ideas have seemed to work pretty flawlessly. One of the biggest things was I had created a tiered pay scale for some of my guys, um, and we expanded a new office. And I wasn't taking into account. Um, let's see, what was I not doing? I was doing something wrong because I I had done my own payroll up to that point, but I was doing something wrong to where basically I was paying them a percentage plus some other other points to it. And I started looking at my books, and we're running in the red, and I had realized that I was. Oh, this is what it was because they had their own rehab uh, folks 
but I was paying their rehab folks instead of taking instead of them paying it out of theirs. So basically I was not only paying them their percentage, but I was also paying for their help on top of that. So their checks were bigger than mine and we had the empty space. Um, so that took some, some recollection to go back and say the idea that I thought was going to work based on theory and practicality. When you start to look at all the books, the overhead and the expenses, I was actually making less money than all the people that I was training and who were doing much less work. So what's the, com- um, so what's, the what's the conversation like? Cause that's gotta be difficult, right? Hey guys, by the way, I've been overpaying you for the last three months and I need <laughs> to cut that back. Yeah. I mean, so that's, you had to sit down and say, listen, you know, this is a business. I'm not running this for charity. Um, this seemed like this was going to work, but frankly, we can't keep going like this. So if you're not willing to work like this, I'm going to just shut it down and go back to being by myself. Um, and how to so go yeah, that means you have to, yeah. And, and hopefully you hire the right people to where those conversations are going to be, you know, uh, doable. Yeah. It went, it went fine. We, we have, and I'm not going to jinx myself, but all of our practitioners who've had here for four years, we haven't lost one yet. Nice. Well, yeah. when you provide upward mobility and you provide financial gain and you provide inspiration from a care, you know, side of it, then why would they leave? Right. And that's something I've tried to take from my previous jobs where there was incredibly high turnover rates. Like what do you know, we, we spend so much time and energy investing in these people. We should be able to find some ground that's mutually beneficial for both people, whether that's, you know, their own practice that you incorporate your name with it as well, or, you know, whatever their goal is, we should be able to find some way to accommodate that to where it's intellectually, you know, mutually beneficial, financially mutually beneficial, and to where we can keep an, an air of respect because otherwise you just end up in the courts and you end up wasting each other's money and creating destructive um, relationships in the community where people are like, Oh, you know, they had drama or, you know, they used to be with X, Y, Z. And you see it all the time with, you know, different gyms and personal trainers, and they're just not fostering um, a workplace environment that is a, a team oriented upward mobility driven. Um, you know, like I said, mutually beneficial environment. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. And, and I also, I want to, you know, before I let you go, I want to acknowledge you for, the amount of information that you share on your social media page, because I know, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are following you because they're learning from you. And, and I think right. that that's something that um, is overlooked oftentimes, especially in social media and in, in the look at me environment. So while there has to be some look at me because otherwise no one's going to look at you and they're not going to learn. Um, I want to acknowledge right. that, that you're putting out really valuable content for people to be looking at. And there's, always what I seem to find when I look at your posts, and I shouldn't say always, but some whenever you intend there to be, there's much more to a post than meets the eye if you really think about what's been on it. Right. And yeah, well, I appreciate that. Doc. No problem. It, you know, it, it's to me, it's maybe because I'm in the same space as you, but when I when I see something on there that I'm like, oh, he's not just saying that you need to do this to a shoulder. He's saying you need to better investigate the way that you're looking at shoulders. Um I'm, I'm always impressed by that. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. No problem. I, I, you know, always, it's always great to get out there and, and find that there are people, like you said, across the country without any of any reason for there to be any common commonality with it, that are doing similar things and thinking similar things. Sure. I'm going to go get myself a hammer and a chisel and figure out what to do with it. <laughs> uh, Good luck to all of his patients out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it that fast. Maybe, maybe, you know, we'll integrate slowly. Maybe. But uh, <laughs> Dr. Bo Hightower, where can people find you other than on your social media channel, which is going to be at Dr. Un- Dr. Dot Bo, B-E-A-U dot Hightower, which is H-I-G-H-T-O-W-E-R. Is there anywhere else that people can find you? 
Yeah, so you can find us on our website. It's elite-osm.com. Um, you can also find us where I teach at sunm.edu.com. Uh, Say that so that's last one again. I want to make sure I put it in the show notes. Yeah, so it's elite-osm.com. So OSM, orthotherapy and sports medicine.com. And then sunm-edu.com. That's Southwest University of Napropathic Medicine. And that's where we are teaching all the, uh, the young practitioners all the pearls. And frankly, what I do with the curriculum there is I say, what are the things that I actually needed to know in school that I didn't pay attention to? Um, and what are the things that are clinically relevant? And we try to reincorporate that. Like one of the classes that I created is, is radiological report interpretation and clinical correlation. So what we do is we take that radiological report and then we go through and we say, why would this correlate with their symptoms or why wouldn't this based on our orthopedic approach, based on the injury. And then we try to triangulate these things to find the, the biggest truth in why that report is why, right or wrong. Now, I didn't get that in school. I didn't have that. We no. just went through just being rad. And, and, you know, if I had had somebody say, okay, they have, you know, lateral stenosis, but they have no radicular symptoms whatsoever. They just have lower back pain. Odds are that's not what's going on there. Right. You, um, you, you, you might find the stenosis on the imaging, but don't start telling them that's what you have and that's what's causing your problem because it's not. Right. Because we've run neurological testing everywhere. There's no myotome weakness. There's no dermatome presentation. There's no, no radiation anywhere. So the reason why they're having pain is probably not that. Um, that doesn't mean cool. that it's significant. Yeah. So, that's, you know, we try to incorporate new classes and new ideas again, you know, cause we have freedom to, um, but the same thing with our clinical sports medicine class, like what are the things that you actually really see in practice? And unfortunately, most of my teachers weren't really in practice and they were also hamstrung by the curriculum. And so what we want to do is we want to have clinicians that are day one, able to assess somebody in a real world logical way. Um, instead of walking out saying, well, if I just pop people's backs, hopefully they'll be better. Sure. I, I love that. I would be, I would love to hear if you if you have or if in the future you begin one. I'd love to hear about how it goes. You're um, basically patient communication. You know, establishing intentional trust through understanding empathy and and deploying it effectively. Because for me, that's something that I always thought I was doing, but but learned fairly recently, maybe a year ago. I was really bad at. You know, and, and <laughs> because I'm like, for me, it's just tell me what's up. I just want to know what's going on and then I want to know how to fix it. I don't really need you to tell me that you understand how I feel. Like you don't just tell me what's going on, but other people do. Uh, some people want a lot of details. Some people don't. So I think it would be, uh, I don't know if you guys are already doing that, but I think that'd be a really interesting course. Cause I find that, um, Oftentimes I get patients in my office who came because the last doctor who they saw just really didn't know how to speak to them. Right. Yep. And, and didn't really know how to find out what the person was really in their office for. Hey doc, it hurts when I lift heavy. Cool. Don't lift heavy. That's not what they're there for. And, but it's right. not, it's not that doctor's intention not to give them what they're there for. I just don't think the doctor knows how to figure out what they're actually asking. Right. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because that is actually, so speaking of some failures, that's where I probably slid backwards the most in my practice. And unfortunately, I don't have any consequences for it at this point because I'm busy regardless. But when building a practice, one of the things that, of course, I, I figured out is if I wasn't very good clinically, if I was a really good listener and really communicated well with my patients, I could still build my practice, even if my results weren't lights out because they trusted me, they understood what was going on with their with their you know injury or process, and they were willing to refer their patients because they they felt like they were going to get a good experience. 
And at this point, I'm actually the worst communicator in my practice. I'm not explaining the fascia or the connective tissue as well because people come in and they're like, oh, you're the, you know, you're the guy and I'm going to fix you. And then I'm running behind and I just kind of fix them, but I don't really explain things of why they should continue with their home or exercise program or why, you know, they need to be seen in a whatever frequency. Um, and if you can explain those things and really listen and, you know, and show empathy like you're talking about, your outcomes are always going to be better, always. Even if the treatment's the same, the outcome will be better because they buy into the process, they understand what they're responsible for, and they understand that you're on their team. Mm-hmm. There, there's absolutely, for anyone out there who's young in practice or in practice and dissatisfied with the results that you're getting, there is something without a doubt, un, unquestionably to be said for the patient leaving your office thinking they came to the right place. They're going to get better if they think they're going to get better. Even, <laughs> even, yeah. even if it's not all the way, they're better yeah. off thinking it's going to work. Yeah. And we could do two full hours probably talking about the placebo effect and the nocebo effect and how building confidence and people um, will change their outcomes. But yeah, we don't really have time for that. No, no. I just, I was just making the, the general point that your actions, yeah. your words, and your body mannerisms play a role in your patient's ability to get well, regardless of the care that you provide. Yeah. If you're out there listening to Doc, he's 100% spot on. I appreciate that. All right, Dr. Bo. I appreciate your time today and uh, I will definitely let you know when this airs and and I look forward to to talking to you in the future. Beautiful. Enjoy the conversation. I appreciate you having me. No problem. Thank you for listening to the Active Life podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure you head to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating so that we can grow and reach and help more people. If you're looking for more from me and my team, head to performancecarerx.com. All the help you're looking for is right there. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and the process is the goal.